Turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 4. And before I read Matthew 4, I want to just read a last verse or a few verses of chapter 3 so that the stage is set for what we're going to look at today. This is verse 16 and 17 of chapter 3, right before 4. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up out immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now think about that for a minute, the awesomeness of hearing a voice from heaven. <laughs> now let's read chapter 4. We're not going to do the whole chapter because I've got it split in two. But it says, chapter 4, verse 1, When Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God... Command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set upon the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. And we're just going to cut this in half, chapter 4 here. So you've you got to come back next week to get the second half. <laughs> um, I want you to think about something in verse 11. We see here the temptation that Jesus went through. What's interesting is how this happened, how this took place. And first you have to look about who led him into the wilderness in the first place. Now remember we just read chapter 3 where it says he saw the Spirit of God ascending or descending like a dove and landing on him. And you think, wow, he's going to go out in power. Right? Well, let me tell you something. It says the Spirit led him into the wilderness. The same Spirit that landed on him at his baptism and a voice from heaven makes the sound, this is my beloved Son, that same self-Spirit is going to lead him into the wilderness to deliberately be tempted by the devil. 
Now, we know from reading the book of James, God does not tempt anyone to evil. But the Spirit of God leads Jesus directly into the path of the devil. There was a cosmic battle going on here. (laughs) All of heaven observed this unique event, and all of heaven saw the ultimate victory. For God to have a man who can resist all the devil's temptations, he must first be tested. The devil tries to get believers to take a shortcut from filling to power. And God's steps are different. God's ways are different than ours. We may have a mountaintop experience with the Lord and think, Wow! Look at this, man. I got so much from the Lord today. I'm ready to serve. You're not either. You're not. Because God's order is filling and then testing and then resisting and then power and then serving. Isn't that interesting? The devil tries to get us believers to do that. His shortcut is filling service. And I've seen so many young people go out to a mission field totally unprepared for what they're going to face. We ask to be filled with the Spirit, and then the first thing that happens is we get severely tested, and we say, hey, what's going on here? I thought I was filled with the Spirit, but now things are worse than when I... When I didn't have the mountaintop experience, what's going on? What's happening to me? Why is it happening? Because you're filled with the Spirit. (laughs) And you're now a threat to the devil. You see, he isn't concerned about the nominal Christian who sits on the pew Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and does absolutely nothing. And I'm not talking about doing as proof of your salvation, but no fellowship with God on Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning. He's not concerned about you. You're not a threat to him at all. But when you choose to to be filled with the Spirit, when you say, I am resolved to follow Jesus 24-7, you're going to make an enemy. Well, you made an enemy by just accepting Christ. I mean... His best, his best technique is say the devil doesn't exist. That's his best technique so he can come to you and tempt you. But here's what happens. I always think it's amazing when I know God has called me to do something. It seems as though after that nothing goes right. Do you ever have that experience? My wife grumbles. The people in church grumble. I grumble. And I really get upset. What's going on here, Lord? Actually, we are right in the center of God's will when that happens. Because we're filled with the Spirit, but we're in enemy territory until we get home. And we're going to have to resist the devil, not just, oh, why is this happening to me? Oh, goodness. Resist him. And we're going to look at how Jesus did this, but think about what he did first. And boy, I don't know what this would look like to you, but he fasted 40 days. 40 days. Physiologically, doctors say that's the longest a person can fast without doing permanent damage or harm to their bodies. Now, what's interesting about this is that 
Those Rogers kids have big voices, don't they? (laughs) What would it look like to you if you fasted for 40 days? If you're a diabetic, you'd probably die. You've got to have food during that time. This word hungry. Afterwards, he was hungry. Duh. (laughs) 40 days and he was hungry. Well, duh. You know, this word hungry in the Greek is paneo, and it means to pine away. He's ready to die. That's how close to death he was. In other words, it means eat something quick or die. And in the middle of that, that terrible, terrible hunger and and realization that your body is close to death if you don't eat something, here comes the devil. You know, the devil doesn't come to you when you're really doing well, when you're healthy. He, he doesn't, you know. Oh, he'll come to you in some ways that way. But if you're really physically worn out, that's when he comes. You see, he has no mercy whatsoever. None. By fasting and prayer, it was a way to put off fleshly lusts and, and desires. In fact, it was a way to be so perceptive to God that uh, we don't really understand fasting. In fact, it was actually necessary in one case in casting out demons. It was necessary for fasting and prayer. I want to read a scripture to you out of Matthew 17. 18 through 21. Listen to this. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the child and he was cured that very hour. The disciples came to Jesus and said, why couldn't we cast it out? Jesus said, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from there to here and it will move and nothing will be impossible. However, this kind of demon cannot go, won't go out except by fasting and prayer. Fasting and prayer. Now Jesus was all fasted up and he was all prayed up <laughs> all the time. So he was going out in the wilderness to face the prince of demons. Not just a demon, but the ruler of demons. And the temptation, as we consider it here, let's look at these ways that he's tempted. We consider this temptation, and it's the same kinds of temptations that Adam and Eve experienced. Listen to Genesis 3, 6. So the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. So she took of the fruit and ate it and gave it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate You see, these three ways we're tempted here. And you know what? The devil hasn't changed anything because he doesn't have to. (laughs) He's using the same methods all the time. He just makes it look a little different. The lust of the eyes. She saw the tree was pleasant to the eyes. She saw the tree was desirable for food. The lust of the flesh. And she saw it was a tree would make her wise. The pride of her life. Pride of life. That excludes God. I'll be like God. Was the devil's temptation. So in 1 John 2, 1, 15 and 16, listen to what he says. Brethren, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. First of all, he doesn't mean don't love people. 
He's talking about the world system that draws us. For all that's in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. So now comes the last Adam, the perfect Adam. And he has to be tested. I mean, how many of you would buy a tire from Firestone that says, we haven't tested this thing yet, but we really think it's a great tire? How many would buy it? Well, none of you. Because it's got to be road tested. It's got to see if it's durable, see if it's going to hold up under pressure, hold up under conditions that are difficult. So the same is true with man and the son of man. And watch how it happens here. The slander of the accuser, Satan, he boldly walks up to Jesus. Doesn't I mean, Jesus doesn't respond to him like, well, now listen, I'm the son of God. You don't talk to me this way. He comes boldly right up to Jesus and starts with the word, what word? If. What does an if mean? Huh? If then, yeah, but what does that cause you to think? You believe in the Son of God. If you do, what's the word if to do? It brings doubt. If. You truly are who you say you are. If brings doubt. If you are the Son of God, the devil starts with, you are hungry. (laughs) You are really hungry. Look here. If you're the Son of God, turn this rock, this stone. looks like a loaf anyway, doesn't it, Jesus? Turn it into bread. You can do that if you're the son of God. Now, you've got to realize something. Jesus' 40 days and nights in the wilderness are a parallel of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. And in that wilderness, God provided bread for them right off the ground, called it manna. But in the New Testament, my friends, Jesus is our manna, right? He's our bread. And so his response is, it is written. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.2 from Moses. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I want to ask you something here. I've had people tell me, oh, I would believe in Jesus if I could just see him do something. God is not into parlor tricks. Okay? What he does for us, he does for our benefit and for his glory, not for we can stand back and just say, well, I don't know now. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? Parlor tricks. God's word is his faithfulness to his word. And I hear people in the church today doing things, they act in the flesh trying to do God's will. Instead of praying and seeking and submitting to God, And then we become phony do-gooders, which is another word for hypocrite. So he couldn't use the lust of the flesh on Jesus, so where does he go from there? Well, he takes him up to this highest pinnacle on the temple, probably the southeast corner, if you ever saw a picture of it. I don't know how he got him up there. It doesn't matter to me. He got him up there. And... He comes to this temptation for the pride of life. And he says this. 
if you are the Son of God, cast yourself down. Notice that if word there again. Cast yourself down. In other words, jump off and float down. (laughs) Instead of falling and crashing, float down and everybody will see that you are who you say you are. And he turns around again and quotes Scripture and says this. He just doesn't get it, does he? The devil doesn't get it. And here's something that happens before Jesus quotes Scripture. Boys and girls, you were asked a while ago, what did the devil use to tempt Jesus? Well, here it is. He used Scripture. Psalm 91, 10 through 12, listen to what it says. No evil shall befall you, nor any plague come out near you. He will give his angels charge over you to keep you in your ways. In their hands they'll bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now that's a promise of God, right? This means yes. <laughs> that's a promise of God. But who's the promise made to? Listen to Psalm 91, 1. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. It's talking about a person abiding in God. It's not automatically a promise to anybody who says, Devil, get away from me. If I'm not abiding in Christ, I can, he can drag me into anything he wants to. And Scripture out of context is just pretext. It's just silly. And Jesus counters out of context Scripture with contextual scripture, scripture that's in context. And by the way, in my notes, I got that backwards, so just scratch it. He says, you shall not tempt or test the Lord your God. We're not supposed to stand in front of a moving train and say, well, God, if I really belong to you and if I'll really trust you, if you'll save me from this moving train coming right at me. God is not going to respond to that prayer because you're testing him. You're tempting him. You're trying to put God to the test. And that's what Jesus said. You shall not test the Lord your God. Put him to the test. And besides that, you're just stupid to stand in front of a train. (laughs) Oh, well. Next and final temptation, the devil takes him up to a high mountain. Now, I want you to think about what's going on here because a lot of us think, well, he was the son of God. This didn't really have any effect on him. Oh, wait a minute. He laid aside everything to become a man. He was never less than God, but he acted as if he was never more than man. And he took on this this place of humility. And here the devil takes him up and shows him a panorama of all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Not the kind of glory God gives us. The glory of riches, sex, debauchery, absolute power over the world. And he tries to get Jesus to take a shortcut from the cross to power. Get away from the cross. We don't want you to go to the cross, Jesus. Now Luke gives us an interesting thing here. He says, The devil took him on a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. And the devil said to him, All authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me. And I can give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, worship me, and it will all be yours. Where did the devil get this authority? Is he lying here? Well, he's always a liar, but in this case, he's not lying. It had been turned over to him. Who did it? Who did it? 
Huh? Adam. You see, God created Adam with an amazing amount of authority over this world. He was supposed to rule the world, subdue the world, and make everything replenish and be fruitful and multiply. And when he turned it over in the flesh, and and it says in in Romans chapter 5, by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, therefore death passed to all men because all men sin. In other words, we inherited a nature of death. And Adam turned it all over to Satan. It's interesting. 1 John 5, 19 says, We know that we are of God, but the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. You know what that means? The Greek word for under the sway is keima, and it means it's sitting in his lap like a plaything. <laughs> it's sitting in his lap. This is the devil. The world is sitting in his lap like a plaything. The Greek word here under the sway is just amazing the way it demonstrates what John is saying in 1 John. Did you know if you're here today without Christ, you do not have an original thought of your own? (laughs) You're just Satan's plaything. He can make you believe anything but the truth. Rusty and I get together every Thursday. We've started calling I don't call him Rusty anymore. <laughs> I call him Dusty. Because we agree together every week that we're all just piles of dust. That's all. So Rusty and I are both dusty. It's fun to get together with Rusty, by the way. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. Listen to what this says. This is very important if you're out telling people about Jesus. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled or hidden to those who are perishing, in whose case their minds have been blinded by the God of this age, that's Satan, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, would shine on them. Once again, however, in this temptation, Jesus' response is exactly the same. It is written. But this time, he's had enough. This time, the lust of the eyes is not going to work on him either. And when he says, away with you, Satan, I imagine that made Satan's skin crawl. I'm not sure Satan has skin, but it, <laughs> it scared him. But it was the Word of God that drove him away. And he says... It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, it says. Now, some other scriptures say he left him for a while. He never quit dogging his steps, but he was there. And after this, the angels come, it says. But Satan only acknowledges one other authority besides his own. The authority of this book by the person who spoke it. That's all he, he. That's all he acknowledges. You can, he, you know, he can come up to you and tempt you to do literally anything. You can't say to him, "Look, Satan, I'm a son of God with Jesus. You don't talk to me that way." It's like, who do you think you are? Who died? Who, who are you? Did you die and leave somebody you, leave you in charge? I'll do anything I want. 
Now, what we have to remember is that we have the same exact power through the Scripture that Jesus had because we're in one with Him now. The minute a person becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, God seals them in His Son completely. I was at a funeral yesterday of a good friend of mine. He's about six years older than me. And he was in the first church I ever preached and pastored. That's how long ago we've been friends. And I had a great deal of respect for him. I, I, he, when he preached, he, he preached sometimes. He had a voice like this, and it was monotone. And my wife says, man, every time he speaks, I go to sleep. I just don't get anything out of it. I said, then stay, aw- <laughs> stay awake and listen. Because whenever somebody gets up and shares the Word of God, somewhere in there is a nugget. Somewhere in there is something you can use, you can get. It may be the most boring sermon in the world, but if you really listen to the Holy Spirit, that man, he's just a pile of dust, right? But you will get a nugget. And here's something he said that just amazed me. This was one of his little bylines. He said, let me tell you what justification in Christ means. Is that you can stand in, a mir- in front of a mirror. Think about it now. You're standing in front of a mirror and looking at yourself in that mirror. And you can say to that person in the mirror, God has nothing against you. Can you do that? You can do that if you have received Christ and been washed in His blood because God is totally satisfied with the death of Jesus for all sin. And if you've accepted Him, God says, I've justified you. What that means? I can stand in front of a mirror and look at the person in the mirror and say, God has nothing against you. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. And it's just God. You have to understand that when Jesus quoted Scripture, he realized the devil knew the word as much as he did. No, terrible. The devil knows the word better than you, actually. And this cosmic battle's over, and the angels come and they minister to him. They probably brought him physical sustenance, they brought encouragement, and he began to work with him in the power of God. Now, what is this all about? Why, why is this so important to us to know this stuff? I mean, sometimes people read the temptation of Jesus and say, look at how powerful he was. He didn't get that way just because he was the Son of God. He was filled with the Spirit. But it had to be a test. In order to qualify him to be our substitute in death, he had to have no sin. And how's that going to be proven unless you tempt him? to sin. Amen? You understand that? Our birth through Adam caused us to inherit sin. Our new birth in Christ caused us to inherit God's righteousness. Isn't that exciting? First Corinthians, or, uh, Second Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. I want you to listen to this because this is why Jesus went through this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Now, all things are from God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and given us this ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them. Did you hear that? And He has committed to us this word of reconciliation. So now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And here's the key of this temptation. He made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. Did you hear that? God made Him who never sinned, and who knew no sin, made him become sin, not made him become a substitute only. He literally made Jesus become sin so he could judge it once and for all. This is the gospel. This is the good news. If he took it, I don't have to. Well, y'all are just really excited here this morning, aren't you? He did it for us. I say again, for us. For you. You have a problem believing God is for you? Look what he did for you. Refused to spare his only son for you, for me. Jesus doesn't just swoon on the cross for original sin. He literally became sin because God hates sin in any form. But He loves forgiveness. When He sees that repentant heart come and say, Lord, I have sinned against You. Please forgive me. He's quick, ready, and instantly wants to do that. That's His motivation. So, we might be so that we might become the righteousness of God again. You know, my, God counts us righteous even though we're still sinners because He set His Son in our place. Now, you and I all deserve hell for rebelling against God with the smallest little sin. It's just enough to, to really insult His holiness. But He takes this perfect man, takes him through the test, and he becomes sin for us. And here's the good news. This isn't my, in my notes. In Hebrews 2.18, listen to what he says. For he, in that he himself has, been, has suffered being tempted. It was suffering for him to go through this temptation. He's able to come to the aid of all those who are tempted. Listen. There is no temptation that's ever come on you that's not just a common thing to every man, but God is faithful, will not allow us to be tempted above what we're able, but will with the temptation itself provide us the way of escape, he says. That's 1 Corinthians 10:13. But think about this. In the fact that he's been tempted in every way, not sin, when you go through it, he understands. And he comes to your aid quickly. If you're here today without Christ or... You're saying, well, I have faith. You know, faith won't save you unless grace saves you first. <laughs> faith won't save you unless there's grace there. It's, there's no power in faith itself. There's a whole group of people called the Word of Faith Movement, and they go around and say, well, you can create your own reality by just speaking it into existence if you have faith. 
And I've had people say, probably to you, Becky, I think you've said this to me, well, you know, if you just had enough faith, you'd get up and walk out of that wheelchair. I had some people when we had a baby that died in the womb tell my wife, well, if you had enough faith, you can make sure that baby's still alive. It isn't dependent on how much faith I have. It's how big my God is. Amen? Okay. That's where I'm putting my faith. On the goodness, the bigness, the power of the God who loves me. Faith is almost nothing. Faith is doing nothing but sitting down in a finished work. It's not I have faith. I have Jesus. <laughs> That's the difference. All you have, if you say that, is fleshly religion. And now you need to repent. Because you may not think that you can be a tool of Satan. But we all were at one time. It says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, I'll close with this. And he made you alive who were dead in your sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience, among them whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like everybody else. But God... I don't know how many times it says this in the Bible, but it uses the word, but God. And it usually comes right after some awful, awful situation. And then it goes, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy, and because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ that in the ages to come he can show all his exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. When you get to heaven, if you're a believer, you're going to be amazed. (laughs) God's going to open up and show you what he's got for you and you're going to go... (gasps) You know, God is rich in mercy, and because of his great love, he loved us. Do you know the love of God in Jesus Christ? And if you do, are you submitting yourself to him alone? Now, he has an order of things. He tells the wife to submit to the husband. He tells the citizen to submit to the president. You know, he tells the the children to submit to their parents. He tells churchgoers to submit to their leadership. He tells all of us to submit to one another. And that's how you submit to God. But the very first place to start is to come at the cross of Jesus and say, Lord, I have nothing to bring here except my sin. But I trust you that you really did love me and die for me. And if you love me that much, I trust you, you'll take care of me the rest of my life. Oh, I may not have a Cadillac. (laughs) I may not have a, a big house on a hill somewhere. But I'll have Jesus for all eternity.
and he'll have me. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for loving me so much, loving everybody in this room with a love that I can't duplicate or even imitate. I'm so helpless. But yet through your Spirit, you tell me I can do all things through Christ. Lord, sometimes I'm not very lovable. I know that. If, if I ever told anybody that I was good, all they'd have to do is check with my wife. And then check with you. Lord, the goodness I have, the righteousness I have, the unction I have comes from you. It's not of me, it's of you. And it's only mine simply because it's a free gift from you. And every day I get up, Lord, I remember the free gift. I remember what you've given me. I remember that I'm not that old person. I'm a new creation now. And I have a new way to walk, a new way to live. And it's exciting to be a Christian. I pray for anyone in this room who's still hanging on to their religion or hanging on to something else and haven't let go and are hanging on to their sin, that they would come to you today in Jesus' name. Amen.